we're not putting any of this on the show, right? This is just us chatting right now. I'm Charlie Camosi. I'm Jennifer Jamer. And I'm Jonathan Lace. And you're listening to Vernacular, a podcast about faith, culture, and meaning. November 11th, 2015, Father Jim Martin and the Synod of Bishops. So for our listeners, of course, our, this special guest needs no introduction. He's the editor-at-large of the America Magazine. I think you can make an argument he's one of the most important Catholic public intellectuals today. I think for those of us that follow him on Facebook, his, his Facebook page alone has a way of driving stories all by itself. He's the author of over 10 books, including The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, which I use in my classroom. And we need to use Skype to get you into class, by the way, Father Jim. <laughs> and uh, uh, most importantly, I think, uh, for me anyway, was his time as chaplain of the Colbert Report, which I know I miss very much. Um, Agreed. Welcome, welcome to Vernacular, Father Jim. Thank you. Great to be with all of you. I uh, I quail before being called a public intellectual uh, without my PhD, but thank you for the. Uh... <laughs> well, maybe you should have been a welder rather than a theologian. <laughs> well, you know, Jesus was a carpenter, so I would I would see that as a good thing to do. Well, you're you're ridiculously busy these days. Do you want to give us a quick uh, fill in on what's been going on with you lately? <clears throat> Well, sure. I felt like it was a very busy couple of weeks uh, that began uh, more or less with the Pope's visit, and I sort of uh, break them down into the Pope visits, Kim Davis fallout, uh, the Synod, uh, Ross Douthat, and then a couple of uh, trips that I gave, uh, including uh, that I took, including the Ignatian family teaching. Uh, down in D.C., which, as you know, is a group of uh, 1,700 kids from Jesuit high schools and colleges that get together to talk about justice. Uh, and then I also have a new book that just came out called The Abbey, uh, which is my first novel. So, yeah, it's been a pretty busy uh, couple of weeks. Well, that's great. I know Jen Nettle of The Abbey, right, Jen? Yeah, I've actually been reading it, and I just want to say it's just beautiful and profoundly affecting. I hit the halfway mark, but it's just a wonderful read. Well, thanks. That I, I I appreciate that. I uh, you know I haven't talked to too many people who have actually read through it yet, so it's nice to get uh, you know nice feedback. Thank you. That means a lot to me. I'm I'm glad you enjoy it. Well, I mean, I'm still working on it, but it's just great. <laughs> well, hopefully it won't. <laughs> hopefully it won't. You know, go off the cliff. You know, in the second half. But uh, <laughs> thank I you very that. much. I doubt that. I really love the way the icon plays such a huge role. So thank I thank you I'll very much. I think I'm up for asking the first question. Um, recently, you discussed how Pope Francis's method for running the Synod was very Jesuit. Uh, could you say more about that and discuss whether or not you think his strategy worked? Sure. Uh, the Synod, you know, as uh, most listeners will know, uh, was uh, constituted in its uh, current state by Paul VI in 1965 as a kind of consultative body for the Pope. But it had been more or less more fun in the last uh, couple of decades because, you know, as uh, bishops have said, they felt uncomfortable raising things that would be controversial. But as I see it, Pope Francis ran this as a group discernment, you know, as you say in the Jesuit tradition, where uh, for a decision to be made, everyone comes together. They are encouraged to be free. And Pope Francis said, let no one say this cannot be said, you know, at the beginning of the two-year process. And he got his wish. Everybody said what they wanted to say. And the idea is the Holy Spirit can work a lot better when things are open. People pray about, uh, you know, sort of their conversations. And then uh, at the end, you know, the person really who is in charge of making the decision, you know, in, in the a Jesuit case, it would be a provincial or a superior in this case, the Pope, makes the decisions. And so the Synod was uh, consultative, as Paul VI had intended, but it was also very Jesuit in the sense that it was trying to be as open as possible in letting the Spirit work and letting people do this kind of group discernment. So I saw a lot of Jesuit um, uh, flavoring in it, although, you know, I mean, I'm biased because I tend to see Jesuit flavoring in everything the Pope does. So I, I think it was successful. I mean, people thought it was really terrible that there were, or some people thought it was terrible that there was so much contentiousness and debate, but 
you know, I, I was just at a parish last night and I said, uh, you know, if we said, let's talk about how we want to reconfigure the, the church building, you know, there'd be a lot of strong emotions, but that would be part of it. People would expect that, you know, there would be strong emotions about these things. And, um, and so the Pope, I think, considered it a success because he, he sort of uh, raised up all of these issues and these questions, not only from the bishops, but also from the people of God. As you know, that it was um, uh, uh, sort of the first step was this, these, these questionnaires that were sent out. So the idea is that the Holy Spirit's working through the faithful, the people in the pews, uh, and the bishops as well. So I, I considered it quite successful. Thank you. That was really helpful for understanding. Uh, Father Jim, I wonder, um, at least when I t give talks on related to this stuff or even just talk to someone at a party about the family in the Catholic Church or something, people almost immediately go to something like, oh, that's an issue for the right or um, that must be about like gay marriage or about divorce or something. But is there something that you think came out of this synod or that could come out of this synod that could change the narrative about the family and Catholic discussions of the family that wouldn't necessarily get pushed into that corner so easily? Well, I hope so, because, you know, as, as you know, I mean, things tend to be viewed through this uh, liberal, conservative, progressive, traditional. And, you know, I don't want to deny that there are factions, you know, within the church that are, you know, cohere around certain issues. I think it's, you know, false to claim otherwise. Um, but it, it, it's kind of a shame that so many of the hot-button topics got all of the attention. I think that, you know, for me, the two most interesting words in the final um, document, which, by the way, there was a translation from the Bishop of Lancaster, England, uh, an English language translation that just uh, hit the Internet uh, uh, today, uh, were the words um, discernment and accompaniment. So we talked about discernment in terms of uh, the idea that uh, a formed conscience, you know, can, uh, you know, basically look at the Gospels and church teaching and and also try to figure out what is coming from God and what is not coming from God through certain interior movements. And, and it's a prayerful way of making decisions, basically. So, you know, it really relies on the individual, but also the word accompaniment. And, you know, Charlie, I think... Uh, this idea that we would accompany families and meet them where they are and listen to their situations and and meet them in all of their complexities, I think is a, a good step forward. I think that, you know, John O'Malley in his great book, uh, What Happened in Vatican II, said the church moved from monologue to dialogue. And I think that this is a kind of continuation of that. So, so when I think of discernment and accompaniment, I think of really two important um, ideas that, that perhaps the Senate can raise up for the whole church. Sounds great. Jonathan, what are you thinking? Hey, Father Jim. Um, Hi, so, Jonathan. Hi. Um, I read through the English translation that you mentioned earlier uh, before before the show, and what I've noticed is that this, the statements by the Synod seem to rely on an anthropology that is based on a fairly static concept of nature and a quasi-historical interpretation of Genesis. So this is my question, and if you feel like it, it requires a lengthier response than you have time for, that's fine. But within the larger context of evolutionary science and critical exegesis, how can we speak meaningfully and faithfully of, of quote-unquote, God's plan for marriage in a way that integrates modern understandings of sexual orientation and gender identity, something that the council seems to conflate with biological sex? That is a big, <laughs> that's a big question. I should let Charlie answer that question, uh, the moral theologian. Um, yeah, you know, I would hope that... Uh, when the final apostolic exhortation is written, uh, it is written, you know, with more uh, of an historical consciousness and an appreciation of, um, you know, of kind of modern scientific developments. Um, you know, when they use the, you know, quotes from Genesis, I think I think most people, most Catholics, know that they're. You know, they're using, uh, you know, stories that are, you know, we always say, you know, we're not meant to read the Bible literally. Uh, I don't think this is unreasonable to say there was not literally an Adam and Eve. You know, these are stories that help the Jewish people understand things, but they sort of point at great truths. Um, 
You know, in terms of sexuality, I think that the um, the Catholic Church has a long way to go. Um, and it's funny, I thought you were going to talk about uh, gender more. Uh, I thought that some of the things that the Synod was saying about gender seemed not to uh, uh, sort of appreciate modern psychological and scientific development. So, Well, that's certainly part of my question. Absolutely. Yeah. It, so it's, it is, you know, I, I know it's difficult, particularly uh, for women, you know, who feel, and I don't want to speak with, for, for Jennifer, maybe she can weigh in, but, you know, who feel that this idea of complementarity is really difficult, um, that, that because of a woman's gender, she has a certain role, you know. So I, I think, you know, that at the very end of the synod, the Pope said that the church needed to be more of a listening church. And I think, you know, one of the voices we need to listen to is, is women. Interestingly, when the Pope said we need more women theologies, I'm sure all three of you remember that a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the, um, I think it was Elizabeth Johnson or maybe Natalia Lee who said, <laughs> they're already there, you know. <laughs> it's not a question of having women theologians. It's a question of listening. So I, I would defer to women on that question. But I, I think that the church has a still a long way to go when it comes to understanding uh, gender. So it's a it's a road, I think. But I'm hoping that the apostolic exhortation will move us a little further ahead, and also that. As we listen more and more, we'll come to understand, you know, people's experiences, and that's about accompanying them, mm-hmm. you know, where they are and listening to, to what, they, what they experience in their own lives. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that. Thank you. Sure. Uh, I had one related, closely related follow-up, actually. Um, sure. Do you think we're ever going to see a theology of women that takes place in a way that is distinctive from conversations on the family, which has been driving theologians nuts, and women in particular? Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you that. What do you think? I mean, you're you're the expert, and I, I. What do you think? I mean, do you think that's moving in that direction? Well, I mean, I wouldn't presume to be a Vatican expert. I mean, I formally study Byzantium, but I mean, it feels like the only time they ever talk about women is when they either say that women can't be priests or when they talk about women in terms of marriage. And outside of that, the church doesn't seem to be terribly interested in listening to women or terribly concerned about making sure that women have a way of contributing in a permanent way uh, and in a formally acknowledged capacity. Uh, so, I mean, I'm wondering, do you, are there any plans afoot? Or? Well, you know, I think, uh, I, I think that you, I would agree with you on the one part, but not on the second part. I think the first part, you're right. I think that they mainly talk about, and when we say they, let's say the hierarchical church, because, you know, we're all mm-hmm. the church. Uh, but, you know, the documents that come out of the Vatican, you're right, are mostly documents about, you know, women as mothers or, you know, women can't be priests or, or the discussions that come out. Mm-hmm. On the second point, though, I really do think that the Pope is is trying to grapple with how to, for example, put women in, or not put, invite women into leadership roles. And mm-hmm. I think that's all to the good. So he has said that multiple times. The question is, how do we do that in a church that, you know, for many of those roles requires ordination? But I do think, mm-hmm. to give him the benefit of the doubt, I do think he wants to do that. Um, you know, uh, something really interesting happened in the synod. They had, uh, you know, it was supposed to be bishops and then priests because priests participate in the role of the bishop through order, holy orders. And they had a, a layman there, and the layman was a religious brother uh, from the little, the little Brothers of the Poor. Mm-hmm. And it was noted that he's not ordained. And so if he's not ordained, yeah. that means that next time we might see non-ordained women. And not not sisters, simply, but lay women, you know, women theologians who, who have sort of voting rights. Mm-hmm. I think that would be fantastic. I mean, I don't know how you can have a synod of the family with, you know, half the family excluded. But I, I'm, I'm, I think the thing, though, is, as I heard from a friend of mine in Rome who's friends with the Pope, and I, and I and I think all all four of us can probably appreciate this. The Pope said to my friend, "One thing at a time." <laughs> so so part of it is, I think he's trying to bring the church slowly, uh, you know, to where he wants it to be and where the Spirit wants it to be. I am very, you know, interestingly, this is off topic. I'm much more concerned. I'm very concerned about LGBT issues uh, in the church. I'm much more concerned about women in the church because I think that, in a sense, LGBT issues are relatively recent even for the West, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Women's issues are not. 
And I think that the church really needs to, you know, step up its game when it comes to listening for the first on the in the first instance to women. And maybe you know, maybe uh, women theologians are an easy place to start. You know what I mean? Because that 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 is a it's a kind of bridge. They say, aha, well, all right, these are scholars, and and there's a sort of uh, mutual kind of understanding there. So I would really hope the next synod is a synod of bishops and women. That would be wonderful. Yeah. Um, I'm praying for that to happen. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> we know that you uh, have other things on your plate today, and we, we just want to thank you so much for joining us on, on Vernacular today, Father Jim. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for thanks to all of you, and, uh, and thanks for all the great work that you do. Thank you. Thank you, Father Jim. Take care. So, Jen, he pretty much... Uh, responded to a lot of what you had to say where where what, what, what are you thinking about his responses and and when where are you at in all this well i mean obviously I've, i wanted the church to start having this conversation before i was born but i'm really glad to see that we're having this conversation now and i'm glad that father jim uh thinks that this really does need to be up front and center i really was delighted that he mentioned uh the lay brother uh who was unordained which was great uh i hadn't even known that that guy was there i think that he was kind of flying under the radar until he was mentioned like obliquely in some coverage um and i was really happy too to have a little bit of a conversation about like the whole like he just did such a helpful 30 second answer about the history of what the synod is and how it's come to work so i mean i've just been i was really happy um i do wish that people were in, internal to the who were a little bit more internal to the organization and the curia understood uh that women do need to be involved in some of these curial positions as well um i'd like to really see something uh, come out of that, but I mean, it's nice to know that Father Jim shares my frustrations for sure. Would it yeah. be? Um, is it? See, one of the things I get frustrated with, frankly, about discussions around um, gender and race and all sorts of things um, like that is, it seems like we're talking about race and gender, or, or in this case, gender. But but often, what's being talked about is really ideology or or values and so i wonder like would it really make you and others happy and me frankly i'd love to hear um i think it'd be essential to hear i agree uh from uh women uh in places like the synod um in a voting role Mm -hmm. uh but if they all had views similar to what um the document uh that came out of this uh uh, put out, put put out there. I'm assuming that wouldn't be like what you and others would want, right? It would be. It's not just having women speak. It's people with different points of view. It sounds like, right? Well, there's two things going on. Uh, one of them is a consistent sort of post-colonialist and feminist problem. So these are two kind of closely related but sort of separate academic concepts, which is. Can somebody who speaks without you actually speak to you? Um, and different people have come down on different sides of that. So if you're a woman and the curia is speaking without you, uh, is it really thinking about you and taking you into consideration? So we do need women in there for this to be seen by some groups of feminists, and I'm sort of kind of sympathetic to this claim. Uh, can we? find the Vatican authoritative without women actually being a part of it. Uh, Something like an apostolic exhortation following up after the Synod. If women weren't at the Synod, does this speak to women? Um, I'm sympathetic to the argument, but I wouldn't say I hold it. Um, the The other problem there, and it's a linked problem, but it's a separate problem, is who gets to be the women at the Synod? So obviously, if the women at the Synod are women who have been specifically chosen to rubber stamp pre-existing conclusions, will they represent women at the Synod? And that's a more complicated question. So if they pick instead of people like Beth Johnson, who understands all these different perceptions, uh, skews moderately liberal, uh, probably wouldn't, I don't know if she would advocate for women's ordination or what she would advocate for in this particular sort of situation. I don't wish to speak for her, uh, even though I admire her greatly. Um, You know, 
that would be very different from picking somebody, say, like um, Scott Hahn's wife, who's a famous Catholic apologist who uh, verifies everything that comes in from the right, who from the right, more conservative wing of the church, or somebody who is perhaps one of the loudest voices in some place like Steubenville or Ave, Ave Maria. I don't think women would feel hurt if it's women hand chosen to stamp things because they know which side of, because they sympathize with this group or they perhaps want this psychological inclusion of being um, accepted by this group. So those are two separate yet linked problems. Now, I think if we found women who were in the church, of the church and thinking with the church, but perhaps open to uh, speaking openly and entertaining other ideas and talking about other ideas, uh, I think that that would be a very different thing, even if they did come out with the same conclusion. Does that make sense? So the, Yeah, so then I wonder what is, I mean, that's a very helpful distinction between the two, the, the two different kinds of um, issues in play was very helpful, distinguishing between the two. It what my my own impression is that it's the latter one that's really what is the focus, right? Because if if there were a bunch of sisters of life or something who were, mm-hmm. as you say, spouting the company line there to quote unquote represent women, I don't think anybody who wants women represented that I know of would be mm-hmm. or very few would be happy with that. So mm-hmm. so I wonder what's what what this is really about. Is it really about? Um, hearing from women or is it about having a having a particular point of view represented is you know what what's really going on well speaking as somebody who is a feminist who uh is willing to think with and in conjunction with the church uh there's been a few things that have driven me a little bit crazy uh when i've heard this kind of dialogue uh, one of them kind of came up around the contraception debate uh with healthcare coverage i know women with medical conditions mm-hmm. for them contraception has nothing to do with preventing children in fact they wish to have children but they have to time it carefully given their medical constraints whether that's pcos whether that's ovarian cysts mm-hmm. uh whether that's something like endometriosis and this is as much as 25 percent of the population in some cases and uh, studies have demonstrated that more than half of the women who take contraception do it to control another condition uh you know and that varies anything from you know sometimes even stuff that's not even related to women's cycles can be affected by the hormones um so women were women i knew of who had no who actually were pro-lifers and as pro-life as you could get were like but this deprives me of my meds that i need to not lose these body parts or that i need in order to stay healthy enough to hold down a job so you know there wasn't so i felt like because they sort of thought of all contraception as being anti life-giving, and rather than as in some cases medicine, uh, a woman at the table, even the most conservative of women, uh, if they had seen and known people, would have said, hey, hold up. You can't quite do that, and here's some women who are going to suffer if you do. Um, Another thing that annoys me, uh, when Pope Francis rejected the idea of women becoming priests, he always, not just the idea of women becoming priests, but women being given a voice in the church, he called it machismo in a skirt. Um, And his problem was one of power. And that's not not what's at issue for women. It's not just about power. It's about voice. it's not just about being powerless, it's also about not being able to have an expression. It's about being systematically removed. Uh, so that's part of the problem there. Does that make sense to you guys? I'm yeah. conscious of I'm conscious of Jonathan not participating in this. Let me just say one thing in response to that, and then Jonathan, I want to make sure you get in on this, or, or, or you can take us a different direction if you want. But um, I've, I've met lots of people who just don't understand church teaching on contraception um, say that uh, the church prohibits contraception in a me- that's indicated for a medical context, and that's just not true. So, um, right. and I've known women like that, and I've spent quite a bit of time correcting them at various levels of volume, um, yeah. with various <laughs> levels of jurisdiction. Yeah. So I just don't understand. Like uh, Catholic teaching would be totally not e- not not just okay with, but totally supportive of. Mm-hmm. Um, Pain for for uh, contraception used in a medical context. In so I just don't. Theory. 
Charlie, I just in theory. I heard Cardinal Dolan when the Affordable Care um, Act was being passed and contraception was being included, he equated all use, and it was very sloppily done. It was in an in interview with, I want to say it was ABC, but I was watching it, and I actually did take a folded up sock and I threw it at the screen as hard as I could. Um, and he said that he didn't, he said that if women needed contraception, they could go to the drugstore around the corner, and he didn't see it as a public good. And I was wow. thinking, you do not know women who suffer, do you? Yeah. I mean, no, I'm not personally one of them, but I know enough women that this is a truth that I can certainly acknowledge. Um, so for me, that was one of those things where it's like if there were women in the room, he wouldn't have been allowed to say something that dumb without knowing that he was coming through the door to probably a hail of socks and shoes and other thrown implements, um, if that makes sense. Or maybe people wouldn't throw things at him, maybe they just yell, but, you know, he would have known that that was not okay. So a lot yeah. of this is the sort of implicitly male bias thing, and some of these women who believe that the suffering from these disorders is something that ought to be offered up to God rather than intervened with. Mm -hmm. There's a whole realm of nonsense coming out of a lot of people who are actually ignorant of what the church teaches. And part of this is because the people doing a lot of the official teaching and a lot of the enforcing are spouting particularly toxic versions of the party line. What did you um, think about what did you think about his answer to your question, Jonathan? Do you think he answered it? Um, you know, it was a fairly complex question. I don't think he expected it. Um, yeah, I, th I thought he did a good job of sort of, you know, uh, showing his hand, as it were. Uh, I mean, he basically said that, you know, the church has a long way to go with gender. Uh, so I, I didn't expect him to sort of give me a you know, uh, a journal article quality response in the short amount of time that we had him on uh, for, for questions. But um, I, I did find it encouraging to sort of hear him imply that the current teaching on gender, uh, in uh, you know, the, the current official teaching on gender, as reflected both in the catechism and in recent uh, papal and episcopal statements, uh, seems seems to either ignore or be completely unaware of um, you know modern scientific uh, perspectives on these these issues and I think my question and you know the the issues that Jen was speaking about ultimately can be traced you know to uh, a certain anthropology right uh, you know if 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 uh, if, if your theological anthropology is thus, right? If it is, a, uh, if it envisions the, the the human person in a certain way, uh, using certain concepts built upon built upon certain philosophical foundations, right? Then the current teaching of the church makes perfect sense. How could it be otherwise uh, if it's built upon this anthropology? So I think that the synod, um, you know. Is, is certainly a step in the right direction, but I think uh, a lot of people who, for example, are homosexual and consider themselves faithful Catholics, uh, or people who are transgender, or or, or you know, or uh, certain segments of the female population of the church, um, I, I do think that they uh, probably were hoping for more, and I think that their concerns ultimately boil down to. Uh, you know the church's teaching on you know uh, the nature of what a, what a person is. What, you know what is a human being, uh, and 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 the the method that the church uses to answer that question. Uh, so I mean that that's certainly you know beyond his answer, but I but but I but I do think it sort of ultimately connects back to that. Last time when I talked about maybe within the next century we want to have a theological anthropology that actually works, a lot of that's what I was talking about. Yeah. Uh, so much of this is fruit of tree where you know people adopted some particular ideas out of ancient philosophy codified them and then assumed that they were immutable and they've been really wrestling to figure out what to do uh, in the ancient world people didn't understand women weren't defective men they were designed to be women uh, from the very moment of their conception and so women were devalued uh, we are still wrestling with what to do now that we know that women were intended to be 
created as women, not as failed men, and that when it comes to IQ and when it comes to about 90% of what human beings do, we are just as good. And for another 10%, uh, there's skills that we do have. And whether we try to figure out a way to make gender complementarianism work, and I'm, I'm, I have real problems. Uh, I think a lot of that's a lot of Western cultural baggage through a sort of norm that's kind of strangely constructed, uh, or whether we sort of think about equality in a broader and more inclusive way that doesn't necessarily presume complementarianism as a perfect system. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be, you know, uh, that, that's important to having a functional theological anthropology, and we need to have everybody talking to get there, because we had about a thousand years of conversation uh, before we created this theological anthropology. Uh, we're now going to need at least 50 years of allowing a lot of different opinions to um, go forward without looking to exclude everyone from the conversation who doesn't match a preordained conclusion. So, yeah, and I think, I think that definitely, I think that would be wonderful. Um, I don't see a lot of that on um, in the polarized debate on either side, frankly. Mm-hmm. I think... Um, I think there are preordained conclusions on the sort of centers of power with regard to that polarized debate that if you don't have the right answer, you're done, right? You're ostracized, yep. you're you're a bigot, you are not a Catholic, you are not a serious academic, you are anti-science. And I don't think any of that's helpful. I think one thing we know from the history of the science and the history of the church is that today's very confident conclusion is tomorrow's rejected theory to the dustbin of history. And um, there is no uh, accepted scientific understanding of uh, gender or mm-hmm. um, even 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 biological sex, I think, is something that a lot of people would point to as a contested thing. There are people who will say um, this gender complementarity thing is evolutionary, right? It's not some, you know, imported thing from Aristotelian philosophy or or something like that, but that they see that natural selection has produced um, a situation in which uh, males and females complement each other in various ways. So, right. um, so I don't, I don't. Uh, it would be wonderful if people could put the dogma aside, the assumptions aside, and just have an open, honest debate about this, rather than seeing this as a culture like hurling. Um, doctrines and dogma at each other from various perspectives. Well, I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's it's one thing, right, to say that, uh, for example, certain causes may not be known, but if you say that, if the claim is that there is no scientific consensus on um, something that you just said, Charlie, there's, you said there's no scientific consensus on was it was it gender. Like, the, like what yeah, gender is yeah, it's one of the most contested questions both in in sociology and in biology right like there's no agreement about that well I would say that there are there is some body of research uh, that forms the basis of statements by organizations like the American Psychological Association for example uh, that point to gender being something that is not necessarily conflatable with biological mm-hmm. sex, right? Now, the causes may not be exactly known, but um, in terms of in, in terms of allowing theology to be informed by science, right? And that, granted, and I, I do grant your point, Charlie, that science is tentative, um, but, you know, no scientist alive today believes that uh, heliocentrism is a theory that's likely to be overturned in the next hundred years. Um so while science is tentative, there are some theories that uh, have been so tested that they stand up as, as, as fact and, and are considered as such. So uh, I would say that I, I would be happy if there was just the acknowledgement, right, that, mm-hmm. that the science is... Is that the scientific research is ongoing? I would be happy even with that, right? But but to just you know see a gathering of bishops in the year 2015 for three weeks, and have the word science, the word science, come up only one time in the document. Uh, I did a I did a, a a word search and 
the word science shows up one time on its own. It shows up as a part of the larger word conscience multiple times. Um, but but I just think for, for so many people who identify as homosexual or who identify as, you know, transgender, et cetera, you know, the document really just isn't going to have authority. It's just, I mean, I mean, yes, they will give it heed as their, as their obligation as a Catholic, but in terms of speaking to their particular situation, I mean, I, I just think it's going to, I just think it's going to fall on deaf ears. I mean, and the other thing, too, at what point do some of the people who have the idea that women say, like, all right, so Larry Summers, five or six years ago, former president of Harvard, said the reason there aren't many women in science is women are not, not naturally good in science. Uh, he refused to see how um, basically some of the social factors, uh, some of the cultural factors, and even some of the institutional factors uh, prevented women from feeling confident in the science where there's a terrible sexual harassment problem in some cases. Uh, the, as that astronomer who just got removed, uh, he, he, was, he apparently had racked up a number of cases of that. Or where, you know, men are more likely to get the lab time, even if they're married. And, uh, you know, even if they're married, their marital status doesn't affect them, whereas a woman who has kids might fight much, have to fight much harder for time with a microscope. Um, so, you know... Larry Summers just said women just aren't good at science. And, you know, science actually has a number of really, really amazing women. I know because my sister's one of them. And they've done testing on kids. Uh, and there isn't necessarily, even up through the teen years, necessarily a sexual differentiation in kids' aptitude. Uh, it seems to come down to encouragement and cultural factors. So, Larry Summers, in this case, is arguing for a heliocentric universe, uh, or he's a climate change denier. So, I mean, in some cases, we do have compelling right. data. Oh, yeah, sorry. But, uh, uh, yes, geocentric. I guess my, uh, my maybe disagreement with the approach that what I hear you two articulating is I think the sphere of inquiry and conclusions from science where we just say that's kind of like heliocentrism is a lot smaller and that the um particularly with regard to these contested issues that we're talking about i just don't think there's that level of certainty um mm -hmm. especially given the politics that are in play i as a bioethicist i do a lot of interacting with um scientific types and i the papers i read their level of argumentation is so, it's embarrassing, actually, in the amount of um, lack of self-awareness with regard to the kind of politics that are in play in their own point of view. So the debate over embryonic stem cell research over about 10 years ago was completely loaded with politics. Now we see that you don't need to destroy embryos at all to get therapies from stem cell research, and most stem cell research today is done without that kind of violent behavior. Well, the APA... The APA, the American Philosophical Association, simply won't let papers be published by people who want to do research on uh, post-abortive women who are struggling with, with, with that abortion. It doesn't fit the political narrative that's accepted within that guild. So when we point to science, when we point to like what is accepted, I think we need to be skeptical, just as we are rightly skeptical about bishops and church leaders about the political narratives that are just accepted, right? Just as a mad, just the lens through which these people look at the world. And it's not like heliocentrism. It's not like these other things. It's, it's, it's totally connected to politics in many different kinds of ways. Well, I certainly would agree with you that, you know, politics can serve to corrupt any legitimate, you know, mm -hmm. scientific endeavor. Um, and while it may be true that, you know, we don't have as much science to back up what we say about gender identity um, as we do regarding evolution, right? Even if you mm -hmm. take evolution itself, right? Uh, you know, if you really take that scientific knowledge of the origins of our species seriously, then I think, and this was part of my question to Father Jim, you know, I mean, how, how do we speak in, in a meaningful way about 
uh, natural law when nature it, when nature itself is is not static, right? Nature itself mm-hmm. is dynamic; it's moving. So, uh, it, at least from from my perspective, when I when I sort of look at the tradition relative to certain issues, I see the Catholic tradition as looking at nature as a fairly static concept uh, historically. And our understanding of nature has has changed. We know it's not static. We know that you know that human beings are still evolving. For example, in, in about a thousand years, people with blue eyes will, won't exist. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, even if the church could could at least make more of an effort to say, all right, in light of you know science, what we know about science, uh, know about human origins from evolution, how does that inform our articulation of our theology of marriage, for example? Uh, you know, when we see, for example, homosexual relationships occurring within the animal kingdom, for example, um, how does that challenge what we consider to be natural or not? Because, you know, I think what we have is a situation in which there, there's a certain, a certain uh, segment of theologians who are who are claiming that there is no such thing as a homosexual person or a heterosexual person. There's just a human person, and you're either ordered or disordered uh, mm-hmm. relative to nature, right? And you're disordered according to nature if you don't, uh, if you have inclinations that go against, you know, uh, a, a certain articulation of natural law which has never changed and which will never change, right? Mm -hmm. And I just find that to be incredibly, um, just incredibly short-sighted, you know, and and, and not not good theology. Right, or the dynamic that women are supposed to constantly be passive and receptive and nurturing, well, uh, rather than, you know, being aggressive, dominant, and out there in the world. How many Golda Meirs is it going to take? How many Madame Curies is it going to take? How many Jane Goodalls is it going to take? How many Ada Lovelaces is it going to take before we realize that the natural gifts of women, uh, when they're construed against a sort of artificial narrative of passivity versus activity, um, you know, when are we going to recognize that women can lead? When are we going to recognize that women leadership and women headship and women... Um, you know, doesn't really fit this sort of gender complementary model. And how many how many male preschool teachers are we going to make feel emasculated before we start recognizing that there's some wonderfully nurturing men out there? I mean, that that's kind of scary. I mean, you know, we're taking people who have gifts and we're casting those gifts aside to fit an artificial binary in many cases. Does, so I, I mean, that's that's I one of my say, concerns. I, I have to say, I, I, I with all due respect, I just don't. I just don't feel like this is a conversation from 2015. I think this might have been a, a conversation from 1985, but I don't. I don't know anyone. I don't know a single person who. Who I know lots of people hold tr- very traditional beliefs about these matters, mm-hmm. who would say that that women can't be leaders or that um, nature is somehow static or wouldn't accept evolutionary <laughs> principles um, with regard to nature. So. Um, I guess I'm just not recognizing that these critiques feel like straw men to me. I just don't know anyone that 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 holds these views. What's well, in the teaching, right? I mean, look at the yeah. I mean, look at look at the official teaching well, of the, the church. And the coded like, language too. So much like coded let, language. Let, let's go. Let's go to that. What What do you have in mind specifically? Paragraph three ninety and paragraph four hundred of the Catechism. Well, no, that's we're talking about the synod of bishops. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's certainly predicated on that, right? Um, Let me read you a quote from the Synod. At the beginning, there is the original family when God the Creator established the primordial marriage between Adam and Eve as the solid foundation of the family. God not only created the human being masculine and feminine, but blessed them to be fruitful and multiply, etc., 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 right? Um, So, uh, you know, where is any any acknowledgement that the one man that all of us today, all men trace their lineage to, lived about 60,000 years ago, and the one woman that all women trace their lineage to lived about 150,000 years ago. 
those are called scientific Adam and mitochondrial Eve in the in in the in the literature, right? I mean, mm-hmm. how does that inform? Or sometimes chromosomal you know, atoms, yeah. where I've sometimes seen it, yeah. uh, that pops up most frequently in searches when I've done this one. Right. I mean, and even you know, even the synod's own words. I mean, the synod would certainly say and and would affirm what the catechism says, right? About human origins. Uh, so, so when you have an account of human origins that, that basically make the claim that the reason that things die on this planet is because the first two human beings sinned, right? Um, and, and, and there were no other human beings alive at the time of, of their creation. Anytime theology makes a claim about the physical order, that claim becomes subject to the verification of science. And if you said that to a scientist, they would just laugh at you. Right, Jonathan. Jonathan, you, you keep on bringing this up. Like you've brought this up my, maybe four times since I, since I've known you, and and I just don't, again, I just I just say this. I don't know anyone who thinks there was a literal Adam and Eve, and that their sin before there was any other life on the world was a moment in history that led to this kind of situation. I don't know a single Catholic person who thinks that. Well, then they don't—I mean, I, it's very clear to me that that's what the Catechism says in those two paragraphs that I mentioned. Um, no, it's, it's not clear to me at all. I think it's, it's not a historical claim. It's a theological claim. It's a claim about what um, reading through a, a, a story, right, a story told to elicit a theological uh, reaction to make a theological claim— uh, is it's a mistake to read that through the lens of history and science. It's just not. It's not that kind of document. It's not I, that kind of literature. I, I, well, trust me. Coming from a biblical studies perspective, I would completely agree. But uh, listen to this sentence: the account of the fall in Genesis three uses figurative language, but affirms a primeval event, a deed that took place at the beginning of the history of man. Revelation gives us the certainty of faith that the whole of human history is marked by the original fault freely committed by our first parents. Now, if that's not at least quasi-historical, I don't know what is. I guess I, mean, I guess I don't know how to read that except to say... I know lots of people who are by the book Catholics that would accept things even at a higher level than I would on authority and would simply not countenance that particular view. So let's, can we stop like just quoting a line from the catechism and just deal with what people actually think about this? I've run into these people. I've, I've given presentations on this very topic at the parish level. And trust me, there are many people in the parish level who are skeptical of evolution, mm-hmm. right? Pew Research and Gallup did polls in 2012 and 2013, respectively, between 30 and 50 percent of Americans, right? believe uh, that, you know, believe in a direct creation, like the Ben Carson view of creation, right? What what percentage of that are Catholics? What percentage of those are Catholics? Mm-hmm. I don't have data on that, but I can tell you firsthand that I've met them. They have confronted me after I've given my presentation in the parking lot and tried to call me out uh, about what I said. So I know that they're out there. I'm not, I'm not making this up. I mean, you know, it is the year 2015, and those people are out mm-hmm. there. But it's I not, have to say, uh, when right, I'm oftentimes having conversations about theology with people, they completely uncritically bring up the Genesis account and say that this is why women shouldn't be allowed to be active. Um, this is the sort of thing I'm likely to get cornered with sometimes at coffee hours or um, I have people pull me aside. Uh, I think if you're either not interested, I think maybe you're not having these conversations because people know that you're going to argue with them more uh, logically than the than this or maybe you know they know that you're a phd in theology and they decide not to trot it out in front of you but as a youngish looking woman uh i do get quite a bit of this mansplaining that does talk about gender essentialism roots it in genesis and starts talking about the horrific sin of eve uh that i must be punished for um this is a thing it's happened to me in a number of a number of contexts, but that would be so, for me, for me that be that would be the equivalent of um, somebody who is like a gospel prosperity gospel person trying to make 
like a life on Wall Street consistent with Catholic social teaching or something, right? They just don't understand Catholic teaching. So, but, the, but, but that's the people, teaching, right? I mean, this is my point. It doesn't I mean, no, mean no, it they're not the screaming at the top of their lungs and the bishops aren't hearing them. It's not the teaching. It, it is absolutely not the teaching that there was a historical event where oh. um, that, like somebody ate a piece of fruit and and then like cheetahs started like snacking on gazelles. Like that's not the teaching. Yeah, I, I would I would totally completely disagree. So the the church makes a, a very interesting statement. Genesis uses figurative language, yes, but it nevertheless you know, affirms a primeval event that took place at the beginning of the history of man, right? I mean, look at the terms in the catechism, original justice, original holiness, right? Paragraph 400, right, uh, says that, you know, the harmony in which they had found themselves, thanks to original justice, is now destroyed, right? Now when? Now because of their sin. The soul loses, you know, control over the body. Union of man and woman subject to tension. Uh, harmony with creation is broken. Creation has become alien and hostile. Death makes its entrance into human history. I mean, it's all, I mean I'm not making this up. That is all there. That, that's in the official teaching of the church. But lots of people, and, mo the, and again, like you can't just... You can't help people who just don't know the church's teaching. Uh, most people I know who know the church's teaching and would defend the church's teaching don't have the static view of history and of science, um, a, a historical view, a scientific view that that is being put forth here as, in my view, a straw man. So let's let's make sure that people that don't know the church's teaching get corrected and don't use language like this. But the, but you yourself, in the interview with Father Jim, mentioned the last three popes. Did the last three popes not agree with the catechism? Is that what you're saying? N none of the last three popes uh, have the view that you just articulated. No, they so, don't. And so it's, it's an instance of popes who may or may not say things. If, oh, I'll, I'll say it this way. John Paul II made a series of statements on evolution. He, he was very, very careful. Um, he upheld the church's traditional teaching on human origins. Um, Benedict XVI wrote a masterful account of creation and evolution while he was cardinal before he became pope, before he became pope, uh, and after he came, became pope. Um, he, he, he never said anything uh, to, that, to that level of... Um, of erudition or insight. Um, Francis uh, has uh, not really uh, said much on the topic of evolution directly. He's mentioned it in other contexts. Um, but if, even if that's the case, right, the official teaching of the church remains that the reason that death exists on this planet, the reason that creation is subject to decay is because of the sin of the first two humans. And, and that is something that anyone can, can see plainly in the catechism, right? Well, first of all, it's, I should have brought this up earlier, and that's something I forget to bring up from time to time on these matters, is the catechism is not canon law, right? So the catechism is a, um, it's, it's a tool to help explain um, uh, what Catholic teaching is, to people that aren't canon lawyers, and it's it's a pedagogical tool in a way. So the catechism of the Catholic Church is not canon law. It's not the fullest um, expression of Catholic teaching in this area. So I'd be willing to admit that this is not the best articulation of Catholic teaching on these matters, as evidenced by the last three popes, none of which, uh, well, certainly you can make I guess an argument about Francis, but no one would say that Benedict XVI and Paul, uh, John Paul II would be saying anything contrary to Catholic teaching. So, um, so, so I would be, feel more comfortable. I haven't researched this myself. I'd like to look at what um, the canons have to say about this. Um, and I don't know what, if there is anything on regarding this, honestly. I mean, because I mean, my understanding is that canon law doesn't really deal with theological questions, right? Canon right. law is, it's is, 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 is yeah, it's it's more about church discipline, right? Well, not in every circumstance, right? Like, well, I mean, there's a big d debate about what is theological and what's disciplinary, um, but there are plenty of things in canon law which deal with. Um, Questions that are uh, theological, plenty of things. I think if you, if you if you asked, you know, if if each one of us asked our parish priest, right, 
according to according to the church's teaching, why do people die, and why do things die on the earth? I think if you did that, you know, at, for, for, with a hundred different parish pastors, I would say probably about eighty percent of them would say something along the lines of, "Well, because of the sin of Adam and Eve." That that would be my guess. And, yeah, and, I mean, and, I guess, and, and I guess, what, I, guess yeah. I guess I would have to say something like that too. I just would think of it as a theological claim that's not historical and not scientific. But if so, it's uh, not scientific, then how can it affect the experience of death on the on on Earth, right? I mean, that that's what I don't understand. I think that leads us toward like this, and not that you're intending to at all, but I, I think that mm-hmm. that leads us into some sort of like Gnostic idea where like spiritual death is something that 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 is is not connected at all to physical death. Um, and I just, I just don't, I just don't see that. Uh, I mean, I'm but, actually a lot less interested in the evolution question uh, than I am at this. I than I am in this idea that you know, we're, whereas we're willing to accept a lot of other uh, modern concepts into our teaching, like no one's saying that you can't drive an automobile, etc. Uh, we are so free and so. Um, willing to apply and misapply a lot of biblical verses to women's existence uh, and to not think about them as part of an older society or as part of a different uh, worldview. So, I mean, people um, not even thinking about the context of, say, Corinthians, where it's the women being silent in church, or not thinking about the letters to Timothy and Titus and the context in which they're written, or the fact that Timothy and Titus weren't even written by Paul, and just assuming that woman has always had had this stable meaning that will always have the same meaning and function in societies the way it always did, uh, because women actually are no longer understood to be fallen men uh, that didn't quite make it into things, or they're no longer understood to be more corruptible or even necessarily weaker. Sure, women may not be able to statistically log as many log as many pounds up a set of stairs, but men, you know, I think that we can compensate for that by the fact that. I think if men were to give birth, they'd probably drop dead. Um, you know, so I'm actually a little less interested in the evolutionary questions than I am in the proven questions around who women are, women's IQ tests, yeah. women's ability to do things. That worries me a lot more than the uh, question of evolution. I mean, we have so many women who are leaders, who are holding homes together, and it's still assumed that it's normative, that work is really, you know, that that men's work is primary, and women are mostly for the home and mostly about being receptive and you know women have to display a certain passivity and just take what uh, largely male institutions tell them uh, without reckoning with it in the same way um, I think I think that's what I'm problematized by and that bothers me a lot more than questions about evolution so I mean that that's the thing that I worry about the most in terms of the church and science and thinking but again I I, I guess we just have lots, lots of different experiences about this because, um, for well, instance, some of this I, comes down to me being a woman. I mean, people are not going to no, no. come up to so my, you my, and my, my challenge friend. your existence as a theologian, as a dude. It's just not going to be a thing. Well, but, no. I, I mean, with, with all due respect, the, my women friends, very close women friends, in, in fact, theologians, don't have this experience, right? So they don't. They don't experience this as what you just described. They don't have the kind of experiences you just described. Well, I know we haven't talked about do that uh, or doubt that, uh, doubt that. uh, But you know, if you look at what happened to Katie Rhyme, Katie Grimes, um, you know how Rod Dreyer took her to beat up. There were plenty of male theologians that said things that were just as interesting or just as problematic for somebody like Rod Dreher from the American Conservative. Who does he pick on? He picks on the youngest woman he can find on the list. I mean, I have to say, I've, in general, professional theologians have been pretty good. But if I go to a church, a lot of Catholic churches, and it's like I'm a theologian, I get stared at a lot. I get stared so, at I mean, if I just say I'm a theologian. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, I do get a lot of, I didn't know women could do that. Or are you one of those awful feminists? And I go, yes, I am one of those awful feminists, actually. And that usually solves my problems. Um, But, you know, this this is a thing. I mean, there is a lot of, you know, uh, there's a lot of, it's it's a lot more difficult, shall we say. So let, let, 
it's just not the experience of a lot of women I know. But um, but let, but here's a question. So if you go to church on any given Sunday, mm-hmm. uh, boy, that that any given Sunday uh, phrase, <laughs> <laughs> I never used it in that context before. But uh, but, but there we go. There um, go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it's 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 it it used to be that the church owned that day of the week, but now the NFL owns that day of the week. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Different uh, God. Yeah, exactly. It's different tithe. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say the percentage? Is, what's your experience of the percentage of male female ratio in the congregation? Hmm. My experience I is have... that it's overwhelmingly female. Yeah, I would agree. Hmm. I don't so, know. I think a lot of times I go to the family type mass, so it's usually something closer to 50-50. But yeah, I think if I'm going to the times when it's mostly people who are just going alone, it's mostly female. Yeah. So what I've heard from people, and I, I say this mainly as an attempt to um, give the conversation uh, some uh, complexity here uh, from the from the perspective of women, it's men who um, have largely rejected uh, relative to women the church and Catholicism and regular mass attendance. And it's women who are the ones who disproportionately show up and get the work done and put their lives on the line and make time to do what needs to be done for the parish mm-hmm. uh, compared to men. I, I teach CCD at my local parish. I'm the only guy that does it. All the rest, all mm-hmm. the rest are women. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so couldn't one argue actually that, and this is just anecdotal, I have no like data on this, but if, if your experience is, is similar, that really disproportionately women are the ones who are still with the church, who are slugging along, who are not so turned off that they just don't show up and, and, and do what needs to be done in the parish. And what, if anything, does that add to our conversations here about this? Well, there's a couple things I want to address. First of all, the reason that mass attendance amongst men is lower in general than women's is actually something that's true regardless of what the theology is. Uh, it's true for, um, I've seen some studies like largely coming out of Pew that's true for evangelicals. It's true for folks in historically African-American churches. It's true for uh, non-denominational services, mainline Protestantism. Uh, that's just the case. Uh, I think Women are sort of are sort of socialized in such a way that they are a little bit more drawn to the communal experience. Um, a lot of volunteering that I see, unless it's something that is like park cleanup or something that's ordered towards a more masculine set of activities, like fixing and repairing, and the way those are socially constructed. If you go to soup kitchens, it's primarily women too. So a lot of this is the fact that women are socialized for community, which is good. We need to start socializing men more for community. I think that'll actually fix a lot of our issues. Um, but so there you can't say that men are being turned off and not showing up for church. Men are men just don't care as much and are less likely to show up for church. That seems to be what evidence is borne out. But I do think we are going to start seeing crisis hitting with women because I know a lot of women anecdotally who are who leave Catholicism in order to go into other churches because they don't feel like their needs are being met. So anecdotally, there might be some people who may be even still affiliated as Catholic but find themselves getting their weekly um, spiritual nourishment elsewhere. Or there might be, you know, people who would identify as Catholics but who have drifted and will identify as occasionally active Christmas and Palm Sunday Catholics. Uh, going every week partly because of a sense of alienation. Um, Also, I want to point out, there are some really good feminist men out there, uh, many of whom weren't raised Catholic, but would probably find the church appealing if it did better work on women. I know a lot of men who are um, scandalized, actually, uh, by the treatment of women in the church. Uh, and, of course, this is anecdotal. I don't know if you would necessarily get them in the door anyway, but uh, they do mention it as a stumbling block. So... Um, I don't necessarily think this needs to be handled through ordination, but certainly a better understanding of who women are and making sure women feel welcome might actually bring some of these men into the church as well. And never mind the kids as well. So those are my thoughts. But see, part of my point was that this is, this has not always been that way in my lifetime. So my experience is that um, it used to be, uh, it was always more women, but it wasn't quite like this um, where Mm -hmm. you could, 
on a on a given Sunday, it could be ninety percent women if it's not the eleven thirty mass. Like if you go to the mm-hmm. uh, you know, the nine thirty mass or like daily mass dominated mm-hmm. by women, at least in my in my parish. So um, so it seems to me there has been a falling off, but the falling off has been disproportionately male. Uh, mm-hmm. from mass attendance. Now, I'm not sure what follows from that, but I just think it's an interesting thing to point out um, given the kinds of conversations we've been having over the last hour or so. <clears throat> right. I mean, and some of this, too, comes down to how people are managing their time now. Um, you know, I think that it's not incidental that work weeks have become more leaning towards the 50 and 60 hour rather than the 40 hour. A lot of people aren't getting a chance to use their vacation time because we are overworking people. So we actually like, there's a huge number of days left on the table in a lot of jobs because people don't feel free to take them. Uh, So I think men might be a little bit more incentivized to carve out that time for stuff like Sunday football. And uh, women, I think, still find something in being in community and being in a group. A lot of women are drawn to sort of the social aspects. Um, They see friends there. They might go out for a post-mass coffee. Uh, So some of this has to do with how people are socialized to spend their time and socialized to socialize as well. Yeah, so so, that, so um, like uh, not a lot of them that I know, but I, I would I would say that there's a significant number of men who kind of take the attitude that uh, Tony Soprano takes uh, in in the Sopranos series when his son AJ tells him that he doesn't want to be confirmed, right? Um, you know, he says, you know, what, what you know, you know, uh, AJ, what's going on? And he says, well, you know, there's no God. That's what Nietzsche said. Um, and Tony's like, what are you talking about? Who, you know, who told you that? And AJ says, well, it was Nietzsche, you know, because, and that's why I'm not getting confirmed. And Tony says, well, enough of that. You know, you're getting confirmed. Your mother wants it. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there's this whole, I think, demographic of men, certainly not everywhere, certainly, you know, uh, not not every man in a parish, but there's a whole demographic of, um, of Catholic men in the United States that I think, uh, tr- tr- on the one hand, uh, you know, tries to uh, make sure to bring, you know, quote unquote, bring the family to church, end quote, uh, sort of do your duty kind of a thing, but, but when it comes down to the nitty gritty, uh, you know, it's always a uh, always a deferment to whatever mom wants because she's you know she's the one tasked with uh, you know ensuring the spiritual welfare of the family, so to speak. Plus, like despite my accent, I actually haven't seen more than a couple of episodes of The Sopranos. Um, but one of the things too is that The Sopranos and so much of our culture around male heroes and antiheroes, uh, who sort of overlap in particular ways, you have so many people who are the strong, silent, do-it-yourself type, the rugged individualism that permeates so much of American culture, including its religious culture. Um, that the idea of coming into community and that community be and community and mutual self-sacrifice and a mutuality and emotional language, church actually requires a rugged level of dealing with one's feelings. Um, The Gospels are heavily emotional. The Psalms are deeply emotional. The music is deeply emotional. And I think that in some ways, without the social pressure to go, um, men maybe just aren't as comfortable with it. Um, because partly because we have a toxic masculinity out there the same way that we have a real problem with how we think about women. There's also a toxic masculinity running run rampant through this American culture that we're exporting. Yeah. So. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. We'll see you next time on The Vernacular. <laughs>